Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the digital marketing podcast for tech marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. Think small. Just do it. Think different. All of those adver advertising campaigns have been running for a long time, decades even. And they've been running for a long time because they are just, they work. Uh, people remember them. And there are many other reasons why long-term marketing is the right strategy for your business. And this is something that Connor Keppel and I are going to go through in this episode. Connor is the head of marketing for Forest, uh, which is a salon software that helps uh, salon business owners to, to grow their business. Um, so we're going to go through all of that uh, together and explain the benefits of long-term marketing over short-term marketing and how it can be applied to your business. Oh yes, uh, before the episode begins, have you ever wondered how I managed to publish one episode a week for my podcast while working full-time? Well, it's quite simple, really. Um, I only spend time finding guests and interviewing them. Then the guys from podcastmotor.com take care of everything from me. So they edit the audio, they add intro and music, they write transcript and publish that on the blog posts, they uh, publish each episode on iTunes, and... It's been great. They took care of everything from me from the start, so I don't have to think about it really. So podcasting is a marketing channel that has been growing quite steadily in the last few years. And if you ever, ever thought of doing one, but thought that you maybe didn't have the time to do it, you probably have to reconsider because it literally takes me around an hour a week to do this podcast. And if I can do it, you can do it. So if you want to check them out and check podcastmotor.com and what they do, you can go to podcastmotor.com for slash marketers. That's podcastmotor.com for slash marketers. And you're going to get 10% off your first month. That's an offer that is exclusive to everyonehasemarketers.com. If you have any question about podcasting, you can obviously reach out to me and I can guide you in the right direction. So hi, Connor. Thank you so much for being on the show. Everybody says that, but it's true. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me. So on the 18th of October 2016, you tweeted, you're not a ninja, you're not a guru, you're a tosser. <laughs> so why are you so mad, Connor? <laughs> I'm mad because it, it seems like in this day and age uh, that you can't just call yourself A, a marketer, or be work in tech or some other industry without being a ninja, a guru, or, or these type of titles. I think that's particularly prevalent. I think that day I was probably on LinkedIn or something and seen a few people that were calling themselves uh, full stack or ninjas or gurus and so on. So it just makes me mad because I think like it, it's kind of makes a mockery of a discipline um, that at the end of the day we are marketers and maybe people want to call themselves something else because marketing has a bad reputation, but it's it's good marketers that will reignite a good reputation about marketing and things like guru and ninjas are ironically probably the worst thing you could do to put to your title unless of course you're joking but unfortunately in, in most instances people are not that's what i thought so you're a man of simple taste you like whiskey cars and sweet potato fries right <laughs> you started as a marketer for forest three years ago mm -hmm. you've been promoted since then in uh, in the executive team but i know you for a while now and i know that you are a very driven guy you're very ambitious. You want to, you know, want to help Forest succeed. I'm just interested in knowing what kind of kid were you, you know, when you were younger. What type of personality did you have? So, I would say this hasn't entirely changed by any means. But I was very, very hyperactive and uh, severely ADHD. So, I would be the kid in the classroom that I went to a very small school, basically. So there was about uh, about sixty in the school in total. Um, so we had three or four classes in the one room uh, and I loved learning and uh, sometimes I'd like learn stuff outside of school and stuff. So I was that kind of, I guess, the teachers always kind of said I was a smart brat. So they'd be teaching other classes and someone in the, in the, in the classes wouldn't understand something and I'd be two classes behind and I'd stand up and I'd shout it out because I just had to feel like I knew the answer and I wanted them to, to know I knew the answer, if that makes sense. So I guess I was, yeah, a bit of a, bit of a loudmouth kid. And definitely I was a guy who like tried everything from like skateboarding to golf to like I tried literally dozens of things. I was even like pretty much a devout Christian for about like three or four months. I, I mean, you name it, I done it like it's it's I was just okay, really me, hyperactive and really. Let me pause here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. You're, you, OK, so tell me about this particular episode. When was that? How old were you? I was about... 
probably about like 12 or 13 or, or 14. And basically in our school, like people used to come in sometimes and we, we had religion class and so on. And they were running a, a camp. It was like an activities camp, but it was run by this kind of Christian organization. Um, so I went down to this activities camp and there's loads of other kids and it's good crack and stuff. But it was basically <laughs> an exercise of trying to convert everybody into devout Christians. So... Uh, in my naivety, I kind of like, oh my god! I thought this is this is the light. I can see the way. This is the bigger picture. This is the reason. <laughs> so, little did I know, in, in in my general cynicism, that only lasted a few weeks before I, I questioned the greater good. But uh, yeah, so so to, to go back to your question, as a kid, <laughs> I definitely threw myself into everything and was just kind of hyperactive kid who just wanted to try everything and never believed anything anyone said. I had to go like try and discover that for myself. And yeah, that was kind of very much my childhood. It was a pretty happy childhood with a lot of great friends. And I think uh, I was everybody's nightmare in terms of when when my mates had parties and stuff. I was a kid that was like, oh, come on, let's go do this. Let's go up to the area. We're not allowed to go. So I was always that person that was poking, prodding and trying to find out stuff that probably I shouldn't know. So you grew up in, in Carlo in Ireland. And it's funny because I didn't know most of the stuff you told me just there. And mm. it's really similar than my childhood. Okay. I grew up in like a small school. I was the kid in class. My teacher used to call me uh, intellectual terrorist. <laughs> yeah, similar, I, similar. Yeah, because yeah. I used to like interrupt them and say, actually, that's not true and that yeah. kind of stuff, right? So it's it's quite funny. And have you been diagnosed with ADHD or are you just saying the word for the sake of it? No, no, no. I was diagnosed. Um, it was just something when I was about 21, I went along and, and got um, diagnosed. Um, it was something I always knew. And I guess the older I got was certain little things that I noticed, like just my concentration span was really bad. However, once I got engaged with something, I literally just got completely and utterly hooked in and locked to the point where nothing could distract me. And I was extremely obsessive about things. So, you know, when other people, they kind of maybe engage with things at a, like in a less engaged way, in a healthier level, spend a little bit of time doing many different things. But I kind of tend to be like really an all or nothing person. So if you get me bought into something like I will just spend hours trying to pull it apart and trying to figure it out and I will obsess and obsess for 20 hours a day and I guess I try to kind of understand maybe you know how could I do something for a few hours a day do more things that I didn't enjoy doing that are always parts of people's jobs and do it in a way that like you know you could spend a few hours a day become a little bit more regimented become a little bit more routine about things and a little bit less impulsive so I went and I got diagnosed um, it was no major surprise and at the time, they put me on Ritalin, which is the drug basically to help you focus better. So that drug, any guys who watch some of the war movies might know about them. This, the snipers take it if, if they have huge periods of concentration where they have to be basically stay still for hours. And that worked amazingly for a week or two. But I just was like, wow, this is it's, it's a highly addictive drug. And it's a highly it's, it's just not a good thing to it's not it's just not good to be on it. Like it definitely alters your behavior, uh, kind of sedates you and makes you more focused. But I was like, this isn't me. I think I'm better running with being who I am and just accepting the fact that I have major weaknesses. I think a lot of people who are listening to the show would, would wonder whether they have ADHD. So what, where did you go for that? Did you go to a, a psychologist or? I went to a specialist. A specialist. Uh, yeah, a specialist in, in, in Dublin here in Ireland. There's not many of them. He's one of the leading guys, one of the leading professors on it in Europe. So they've had him all over the world speaking on it. Um, and then actually I was talking to a guy from Yale who's also a professor in it as well and stuff. So I kind of didn't went and again, being ADHD, I just couldn't take anyone's word for it. I, I got obsessed about being ADHD and, and, and did lots of research on it. So there's lots of different factors. Like, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, I'm ADHD or oh, and OCD is the one I hear all the time. And in reality, like 99.9% .9 of people who say it are not. And so, and I understand why people say it. It's, they're not saying it in a bad way, but it's just kind of a flippant comment. And like I said, I, I understand it, but I went to a specialist. I, I figured there was just something a bit different about the way I thought about things, a little bit different about also being quite kind of highly strung about stuff. And be, like I felt, you know, things could get very emotional very quickly, very kind of hyperactive type person, very highly strung type person, poor attention span but then yet I had a poor attention span but I could spend two weeks obsessing about the one thing like so I just knew there was something not bad but different and I guess I wanted to know that if I wanted to use it to my advantage or if I wanted to learn more about who I truly am then I should go learn more about it and find out if I really am and as it turned out unsurprisingly I am. So I, I, I didn't prepare any question for that but mm -hmm. there's one question that springs me springs to mind is how did you what type of things did you learn to do 
to embrace those weaknesses and those strengths? Like what type of day-to-day -day stuff do you do to, to handle it? There's a couple of things. Like I, I think um, I, I set myself different stuff. So they gave me certain exercises. There's certain things around diet. So I, I like caffeine and that kind of thing is not good, obviously, for somebody who's ADHD. I still drink a bit of coffee, don't get me wrong, but I've cut down. One thing that's helped me immensely is two things, actually. One is not assuming you know everything and just running straight into something but really trying to actually sit back and ask people for their own for, for their opinions. And that sounds like a really obvious thing, but it's not because we all kind of go, yeah, yeah, okay, thanks for your opinion. And we run with it anyway, kind of like confirmation bias. So it, just asking people, what do they really feel? And keep asking the questions. And that's been really good with people who I'm close with because I think they've gotten to know me better and I've gotten to know how they feel really better. So if it's like, I want to do this in my life, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a good idea, but it's not really like what do you actually think. And usually they give me different perspectives. That's one thing I've done. Um, and I think that's something that has made me discover how little people really tell you about how much they actually think, if that makes sense. So I think people feel obliged to run with what you say or they can feel obliged to tell you what you want to hear. Um, but I think that's been a really good exercise to find out how other people think and a good exercise for me to develop as well. I think the other thing is a thing I call the 24-hour rule. So if I feel insanely passionate about something, and like really charged about it, I just say, right, if I feel this way tomorrow, I'm going to go sleep on it. And if I feel this way tomorrow, then I will act upon it or I will say whatever to that particular person. So that's been really good from a management point of view, I will say in certain things, because I tend to be a driver. So I can turn around and be like, no, 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 like this is the way it should be done. Or, you know, when the likes of Forest is a very autonomous environment. So what that's actually done is The next day when I come back in, I generally do feel the same way, but I act upon it in a much calmer, more open way as opposed to just impulsively kind of working with the emotion that I feel at that particular time. Really interesting. I think a lot of people will will uh, will feel that they might have some, you know, they, they might share some traits with you in terms of that, and they might, might need to get and speak to someone. I'm definitely one of them. I think I need to go. Okay get diagnosed potentially <laughs> no without yeah. without missing i yeah. i there's a lot of things that you just said that that i would share okay. in terms of behavior so that makes me think as well okay right let's go to like the more marketing in detail i know you for quite some time and i know the kind of marketer you are and that's why i'm interviewing you now but i'm more interested in why are you this way today so what made you this type of marketer is there any particular event that mm -hmm. you'd like to share so I suppose what's made me this type of marketer is obviously based upon experience largely uh, and a lot of them are pretty negative experiences as well. So a mixture of, of positive and negative. You know, I have been, I'm 31 now, so I've been in marketing since I was 21, 22. And when I started out naively, of course, I left college and just wanted to get a job in marketing, get my foot in the door anywhere I could. And that was a very interesting experience. I've had some good jobs. I've had some ones I didn't like so much. But I, I think really and truly it's say it's, it's kind of a very hard question to answer specifically but there's been a few events really where i've had to do campaigns things that i've done myself that i look back and the way i would describe marketing sometimes is you know when you look back at yourself in college at a photo and you go oh my god i can't believe i actually wore that that's what some of your marketing looks like from a few years back you look at it and go oh my god did i actually send that campaign did i do that so i think what's made me the marketer today is i've worked with some products that i didn't believe in and that was soul destroying to go in every day and try and craft a message, try and get people to believe in something you don't believe in yourself. That just doesn't feel right. That's one thing. Number two, like I said, is I think I've done some like stupid things in the past myself, particularly with like heavily around discounting, probably some kind of spammy things I did in the past to try and just get the leads or get a sale across the line. And that doesn't feel good. So I think a lot of what's made me the market I am today is learning through those negative feelings I've got. Uh, by not being allowed to be the marketer I wanted to be or by telling myself who cares it's about the result or maybe working for a product I didn't believe in. So I think what's made me the marketer today is having a product I believe in, working with people I believe in and actually largely a lot of it is down to self-belief as well. I think you need a lot of self-belief to be a really great marketer sometimes in, th in this modern world and there's so much noise. But how did you how did you understand that the, the kind of marketing you are doing wasn't good, like wasn't the right thing mm. how did you realize that largely because it felt shit number one and <laughs> number two it didn't feel good to other people too so you know to give you an example i forget what the product was but it was an april fool's trick which of course are always the best mar marketing <laughs> campaigns so we basically sent out an invoice to a bunch of prospects and it was like an opportunity cost invoice so it was like literally saying 
you know, by not using our product, here's pretty much how, you, how much you're invoicing yourself over the next like number of months. <laughs> so, you know, this these kind of like stupid ideas uh, that you think, oh, you know what, they'll get attention. And like, it's almost like, you know, not any, any publicity, bad publicity, but it's kind of like polarizing marketing for the sake of it when you're avoiding the issue that people actually are talking about your products because maybe it's just shit. So it's just doing things to grab attention, to get people's like eyeballs, get people's like conversions. And ultimately, like it's it's almost like the marketing in itself. You're trying to just ignore the product and do tricks that will get people across the line when clearly you're avoiding the bigger issue. And sometimes that issue can't be all down to the marketer. Sometimes that might be, unfortunately, you're in the wrong job or you work for the wrong person sometimes, or maybe it's things you can influence. But yeah, no, they, they were some of the crappy things I did. And I, I would say I'm proud of them. And what was the result of this fake invoice campaign? Oh, I remember someone rang in crying because she was like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like uh, it was basically like an older woman rang in and she was like, uh, you know, my husband is no longer around and I've got this big invoice and I can't pay for it. And clearly she just didn't see, like we had a, a boilerplate at the bottom of it, like saying this is not real, like obviously, but you know, it just made me realize that like, wow, that was, that was just not thought through. Um, so yeah, that, that, that was definitely a defining moment where I promised myself I'm not going to be that shit ever again. <laughs> the poor woman. I'm I know, imagining. No. But it's just uh, actually one thing around that time as well. I read the book, some of the best kind of marketing advice I think you can get, like it's actually from non-marketers. So one really good book was The Tao of Warren Buffett, which is like a little short, short phrases and short sayings and stuff fr from the book. And one of them was, you know, it takes years to build an incredible reputation it takes five seconds to lose it and i was just thinking you know that could have lost it one tweet one whatever in this modern day and age so i was kind of hustling i guess and i, I hate that word now but that's that's the <laughs> flavor of the month so it's kind of like trying to hustle to get a lead or get a sale or get people's attention when in reality that was avoiding a bigger issue which was that there was a reason people were talking about our product and it wasn't down to the fact that we weren't doing enough marketing it was it was bigger issues so what do you do in this situation where you, you know that you've done all you could in terms of marketing and you kind of have this gut feeling that tells you, well, actually the product or service we're selling is not just good enough. Yeah. So if you're not in a position, if you're not in the leadership or if you don't have any involvement in, in the product itself, mm. what would you do? Again, like what would you leave the job? Would you, what would you say well, to people who are in this situation? It depends on, it depends on, on the situation. So one thing that I've learned over time, um, like marketing kind of feeds into every single department in, in some shape or other. Um, and I've tried to be in the past too bullish and a little bit forceful about it as opposed to getting buy-in from people. So in other words, like rather than going to the CEO or going to your, your director of product and jumping up and down on the desk going, this is crap, this is crap, and this is crap. Um, what I, I probably would have done if I had my time back would be to go and say like, what are we actually like, how are we trying to position ourselves within the market? Uh, what are we trying to do to, like in that particular instance, it was a telecoms company and we weren't in any way differentiated really except pricing. So in that particular telecom situation, it was a race to the bottom. So what plans had the CEO, like what did, where did he see us in the market? What was that particular position? And maybe if I'd asked him, I could have gotten him asking himself questions that maybe he hadn't asked himself before. Um, whereas I think my approach was very much like knocking on the door and going in and like throwing a four page proposal at him and telling him why he's doing everything wrong. Um, and that rarely convinces people. Uh, <laughs> is, this, is, it, is this what you've done? I thought I'd done in the past. Um, I'm not going to lie and say I still don't do it the odd time. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, you got to get buy in from people. I mean, in, in certain situations, it was probably one or two jobs I would have left earlier if, if I had my time back. I think uh, it's okay to put your hands up sometimes and say, you know what? This just isn't for me. Um, it's it's not allowing me to be the marketer I want to be. Um, and I think that's something that, again, with a little bit of time and experience, I think a lot of younger marketers are about getting the results and about getting the sale and stuff. And that's ad admirable. Um, but I think a lot of it is you got to ask yourself, like, what do you think great marketing is? And if you can't see that organization letting you develop that as a marketing strategy or letting you develop as a marketer in that way, then you have to ask yourself serious questions. And then, you know, it's it's about taking a bit of risk, leaving or trying to line up something else in the meantime where you fit better and, and working on that. So to go back, it depends on, on how limited you are, but try to get buy-in from others. Try to get people asking questions themselves about it uh, and then maybe present a solution to that question. Or if you can, if that's not going to work, maybe it is time to, to think about somewhere else. Why do you think marketers have a, have a bad reputation in general? 
Um, so, like, uh, I think a lot of it is justified in terms of the reputation that marketers have, a lot of it. And I think it comes down to uh, a few different things. One is a lot of it is based around the product or based around the company, okay? Uh, so it's based around we are great, here is why you should buy us. And then you get into what's known as the arms race where you're just basically fighting on the same channels with the same message uh, and it's just people trying to shout bet louder and, and coming up with new and, and innovative ways like I talked about earlier to try and just get a quick book out of people. Um, I think that's one reason. Uh, I think another reason that marketers have bad name is they tend to, I tend to find a lot of marketers talk specifically about marketing purely in the context of, of marketing as a function and not the general organization. So when I talk to other people, like finance people, they very often talk about the business. When I talk to people who are in operations, they talk about the business. Very often when I talk to marketers, they bore you to death with their own creative ideas. Um, and, and I think like between just shouting about the, the company outwards, but I think inwards, it would be good for particularly younger marketers, I think, and graduates and stuff to think about the company as a whole. Uh, and not to just to think that marketing is their job or their function, but to actually think about how every function and every person is marketing within an organization. Thirdly, I would say, like, what differentiates, like, a good, strong marketing conversation from a bad one, in my opinion, as well, is, is having a bit of data to back it up. It's not all data, don't get me wrong, but just being able to talk to people who understand why the market operates the way it operates, understands what kind of market they're in what kind of people they're talking to and all that kind of thing. But I, I think a lot of that is why we have a bad name is because a lot of marketing people lack that. They go to college, they come out, they work in a job, they see there's somebody else running the social media account. And I've interviewed hundreds of these people. Uh, they come to the table going, I've run a Facebook page, I am a marketer. And in reality, they're not because they're just tools. Like they're not thinking about the bigger picture. They're not thinking about the way people think. They're not talking, they're not thinking or talking about in their own mind, like how this product that they're working on can change the world or make one person's life better or whatever it is. So I, I just think it's, they tend to be quite fluffy, a little bit like self-obsessed. And I would think that um, sometimes having a little bit of data and thinking about the bigger picture, like we're just a cog in the overall picture, uh, if not actually a window more so than a cog even, just into what the company does to the market. So I think there's a fundamental lack of understanding of what marketing really is and what good marketing really is. Um, and I think that's why we have a bad name because I think we, we just give ourselves a bad name as a result. I'd like to zero in into a few, a few things, mm. uh, a few so-called best practices that marketers kind of do mm. and that you think are just plain wrong. So do you have any, anything in particular, like any pet peeves, uh, pet, you know, in marketing that, that annoys you or that you think are just plain wrong specifically? Yeah, I suppose one thing that kind of annoys me, um, and I think there's always exceptions to the rule, don't get me wrong, but generally is the focus on, on growth hacking. Um, that really, really uh, kind of, I guess, annoys me at the moment. Um, so you, you can take some amazing examples. Like you go back to the very early days of what Hotmail did with a link at the bottom of each email. You go to you know, Dropbox with the freemium model and refer a friend for storage. And there's loads of great examples that work really, really well. But working with a lot of startups and uh, like going in to do some talks and incubators and stuff, there's just an unhealthy focus on growth hacking. Like the, it, it's it's like there's no understanding or it's not there's no understanding, but there seems to be an understanding that, you know, there is a shortcut somewhere, right? That's going to get us long term sustained growth. It has to be somewhere. And if you haven't found it, you're not working hard enough or you just haven't, you're not smart enough or you know, whatever. And. Um, and I think that's a real pity because I think to truly build up a great brand, to truly succeed as a company, for most companies, it doesn't happen in three to five years. It happens in a far longer time. Um, and it's that focus on, on that short term, on the, the, the quick shortcut, like how can we like make one or a few changes, like minimum input, maximum output, this kind of crap uh, that I hear a lot of marketers talking about, as opposed to genuinely great marketing, understanding the marketing and having a long term plan with some really hard graft as opposed to thinking about the shortcut. That's one thing that definitely uh, gets my back up, yeah. We'll, we'll get into the detail of how to do what you just said, how to mm -hmm. think long-term, how to do great marketing long-term and have an impact in long-term as well as the short-term. But there's one, like, a lot of people in, in the podcast have been mentioning that growth hacking mm -hmm. is, a, is a term that they really don't like and dislike. I'm, I'm going to play the you know, devil's advocate mm -hmm. here. There seem to be a lot of smart people that are obsessed with the term and obsessed with the practice of like growth hacking and 
there must be something about it that is appealing, right? And mm-hmm. I think it appeals to human nature. We are always looking for like quick, you know, quick wins. And, you effect, know. Yeah. So is it, what's the issue with it beyond the fact that it's just quick wins instead of long-term stuff? Do you think it's, do you think we shouldn't invent new terms like this every, every, every two years to, to describe what is basically marketing today? Or do you, do, do you think we should let people invent new terms and just let, let it go? Because that's how people are anyway. Yeah, I mean, we, we can have this internally in Forest where, you know, why not ignore the noise and build a company that can last for generations? And I think, um, you know, there's always new terms. I've, <laughs> I've gotten caught up with some of them myself. I'm not going to lie. Um, uh, <laughs> not Guru or Ninja, though, as we discussed. Um, yeah, I, I know what you're asking. I mean, it's not that there's anything wrong per se with coming up for certain terms and all that kind of thing, but it's what to me it means. So first of all, trying to get growth as a marketer is a function that you should be focused on, that every single marketer should be focused on, obviously in different ways, okay? So it's kind of like this new term where for me it's like, yeah, okay, so growth hacker, is it like a digital marketer who's good at spotting opportunities? Is it, uh, you know, like, so my point is, it's just putting a new term on something that's already existed, except it, we've become so fascinated and so focused on it that we forget that like we should have been doing that for a long time and in a more long-term way. So it's not per se that I think that there's a new kind of like brand of bad marketers out there, but I think the shift and focus of what marketing is has is, is focused so much now on the term growth hacking, particularly in tech, when I think a lot of great marketers have been thinking about growth for the last 20 years. They think about it in the short term. They think about it in the long term and they do both at the same time across all channels. And for me, growth hacking is, A, I hate the word hacking because it's that by nature is short term. So good marketers are focused on growth. Um, and I don't think the term is needed because I think a lot of people who don't understand the fundamentals of marketing are now coming along like startup founders and so on. And they're just focused on this growth hacking. Yeah, man, it's all about growth hacking. But it's not. I mean, it's about growth, yes, but it's about short-term growth, I'm sure, for the next quarter to meet your to meet your targets. And so a growth over the next 10 years. And a good marketer is always thinking about the gro- about growth, both short-term and long-term. Um, but I think this term has actually almost made it not okay to focus on the long-term. It's almost made it that like all great marketers are thinking about like that one eureka moment that like 10x is our growth. Uh, and the sad part is, is that the majority of us will never ever find that because it just isn't that easy. Um, the second thing I don't like about it as well is the focus on what they're doing as a growth hacker to get that like small change with, for, for a big win. Largely speaking, if you can change two or three small things or find that like eureka moment, it's very, very easily replicated. So, you know, it, it's really a first mover advantage with a lot of that stuff um, as opposed to actually building a sustainable competitive advantage. It's not a competitive advantage. Um, whereas I think if you can build something far greater that people truly appreciate the value of over a longer period of time, that's much harder to knock off a pedestal than any growth hacker. So that's what I wanted to ask you. But before that, before like you made you made two very like two very interesting points. The first one is one of the previous guests in the podcast called uh, Dan Kaplan actually explained that the reason why startups fail like more than 50% of the time, it's coming from bad marketing foundations, whether or not they don't understand customer, whether or not they haven't built the right right product and stuff. And so I think the reason why Hotmail or Dropbox have have actually succeeded is not because of those growth hacks that you gave as an example. The product was good on its own already. And yeah, they use that to like, you know, grow a little bit faster. Mm -hmm. But you can question, would they have been you know, successful without it? Probably. I, I would agree. I would agree. I think so. But the difference is, is that they probably weren't focusing. That was probably something they did on one of many marketing initiatives that really worked. And that's my point is that we're probably doing marketing their way. And it just happened to be that one thing hooked on really well like that. So the problem, the difference is, is when you're focusing and putting all your eggs in your basket to find that growth hacker, to find that eureka moment, uh, and you're not thinking about the long term, you'll end up going two, three, four years down the road and you're not much further down the road because you've built uh, your startup on a foundation of, like you just said, short-term bad marketing. Um, so I, I would agree with you. I don't think Dropbox uh, or Hotmail succeeded just because of that. I really don't. In fact, I, I believe the opposite. I remember Ron Fishkin blogging about something similar. I think it was growth hacking. He Ron posted Fishkin from Moz, right? Yeah, yeah. He, posted a, he posted an article on Moz maybe maybe three years ago okay. or two years ago. Um, 
we'll find it and we post it in the show notes but he was saying basically like growth hacking is bullshit and stop calling it growth hacking it's only marketing yeah and the very next day you know Rand how, how transparent he is and like he's always speaking his mind the next day he basically contradicted his own blog post saying okay. yesterday this is what I said now I don't agree with myself literally 24 hours <laughs> after what a great growth hack uh, yeah and uh, yeah uh, and he he there basically said that, is it like thought leadership disruption yeah, or something yeah like? perhaps <laughs> but he basically said I actually think that uh, we should let people call, you know, I mean, come up with new terms and you can't really fight it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm kind of, I'm very torn between the two because mm. I don't like it either. I don't like this way of thinking that you can just hack your way into success. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen. Like you have to really work hard, think long term, create good, like good things, value, mm. think of people. But on the other hand, it's, on, it's impossible to make people change their behavior like at, at scale unless we come up with this crazy campaign that makes all marketers change their mind about growth hacking. Mm. People will, will keep calling it growth hacking until a new person come up in a new term. So I think we should just focus on good marketing and spread the word. And perhaps hopefully this way of thinking will disappear or at least, mm. you know, I think it's just a term. I mean, it's not the art of growth. Hack it's, it's the art of growth hacking per se in isolation as like the go-to marketing strategy type thing that annoys me. So it's not anybody coming up with, hey, I have a great idea. And then, you know, that gets a hockey stick growth or I have a great idea that that's going to get you thousands of blog subscribers for the right reason in, in the short term. It's not like we turn around in forest and we go, oh, that's a short term idea. Let's not do it. It's, it's absolutely not like that. But it's just if you're trying to build a long term plan, you're trying to move over five, 10 years and so on. You, you just can't keep firing ideas out like that. You have to build something like a long plan, a roadmap uh, that'll that'll get you there. And I, I agree with everything you're saying. Like, who cares about the term growth hacking? They can call it what they like. I mean, if it gets my back up, so be it. But uh, it's just, I think, particularly in startups, I've noticed there is just a huge focus on we have to get hyper growth really quickly. And there's probably some like eureka way of doing it. I keep saying eureka because it's like you're sitting at your desk and you just go, oh, wow, that was it. I never discovered it before. So it, it's that focus on that in isolation that, that that's worrying because you will turn around in three years time and go, we should have been building a better customer base, longer run that's driven by referrals, for instance, that that that's the way to do it. But, you know, each of their own. And I guess it depends on the focus of the founder. If you need an exit in a year's time and you got a shitload of funding, <laughs> then you probably need to find something like that to try and get out. But um, it's like I said, focusing on it on its own, it's not for me. But I think if you can come up with something that's great and do it as part of your overall marketing strategy. So you, you mentioned just a few minutes ago the fact that you spoke to, uh, at a lot of start, startup events and you mm -hmm. met a lot of startups and, and marketers and founders. So you mentioned the, the wrong way they are doing it. And the, I mean, at least the incorrect way of thinking about marketing or thinking of mm. growing. So what would you tell them to do instead of just focusing on growth hacking and, and that kind of short-term tactics? What would be the blueprint for them to actually create a business? Yeah, well, it, it entirely depends on, on the model and uh, whatever vertical they're in or if they're in multiple verticals and so on. Um, I, I suppose I, I believe in a few things. I don't know if you've ever read a book called Hidden Champions. It's from 1994, right? But it's it's about basically about $200 billion companies in Germany that nobody's ever heard of. And they are by far the market leader in what they do, okay? So what I always say, first thing is, is like, for a lot of startup founders, not just from a marketing point of view, from a general point of view, is focusing on all these different opportunities. We can do this idea and we can do this in this market. And, you know, if we pair back some of our features, then we can kind of attack six verticals and not go deeper into one and so on. The art of specialization, particularly when you're a startup, is a very powerful thing to do. Um, so spreading yourself too thin, too quickly will end up biting yourself in the ass okay so one thing that i talk to them a lot about is like what is their idea why is that idea needed like what's the value proposition of that idea who are they truly targeting and how are they going to get that message out there um so a lot of the stuff i do around with, with startups and chat to them about is not really about what tools they're using or the marketing strategy per se it's actually much higher level than that it's like are you focusing on something like who are you focusing on first like what vertical do you want to get into first? Who Who's that target customer that you can serve better than anybody else? You won't be to serve anybody else as well, but you can serve that one person better than anybody else. And that's how you get traction at the start. Um, so Hidden Champions, just to go back to that, I, I mentioned it, like they are the masters at this and they've like figured out how to do one or two things incredibly well and they've dominated the entire market globally. So to give you an example, Chuppa Chups uh, is one of the companies. Their CEO came in, I, I don't know, was it years back? 
Um, I'm not even sure if he's still there, but he came in and they had 250 product ranges. And he came in one day and he's like, we're going to make lollipops. And that's it. And he closed 249 out of the 250. And they focused on that and they absolutely smashed the market and, and grew revenue. Why did they pick this product? I, I actually d- didn't say why they picked that particular one, but I suppose it, it was probably their flagship product, I think, from what I remember. So it was already doing better than the rest. But I mean, because they were spread so thin, trying to target so many different stuff between wholesale and retail and different stuff. Um, the other one is, is I can't believe I'm talking about this, is a Winter Halter, which is a dishwasher manufacturer. So I blogged on that before. Um, what they did is they basically made kind of like um, dishwashers for industrial type scenarios. So army base camps, hotels, restaurants, like you name it, they made it for it. And they focused on... What do we do best? Like, why is our growth beginning to slow? And what they discovered was, it's not that they do the best dishwashers in the world, but it was actually restaurants found that their dishwashers were cleaning dishes and the detergents they had were cleaning dishes better than anybody else in the world. And they focused on that particular vertical, hotels and restaurants. And instead of going into multiple different verticals, they actually extended extended the range of products within that vertical. And then they completely and utterly dominated the market. So... I, I think one thing that I talk about in terms of marketing, in terms of product and so on with startups is they're talking about this grandiose plan, like we want to be the Uber of, for instance, or we want to be whatever of. I think to flip that on its head and to actually narrow things down to the best person that you can serve and how big is that market and how quickly can you grab that market, that's where I would start. Worry about conquering the entire globe or, or 20 different markets down the line. If you're starting there, you're going to build your business very, very thinly. Be the best for some one person, whether it's a head of marketing or it's a consumer in the street or who are you picking yep. that will resonate with your product and that will resonate with your message. But there's one thing that I think is happening and happened to me before is the fear of missing out, right? I think, yeah. yeah, but that's that's what happens. The other reason why 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 startup founders struggle to to specialize and, and and to position themselves, right? Yeah. But I think the reason why many of them don't is exactly because of what you just said. They think that if they specialize today, they'll never be able to be the next Facebook or the next yeah. whatever. And so this is the biggest mistake they can make because it's actually counterintuitive. The more you specialize, yeah, the better you, like, as you said, you nail this target market. Mm the more likely you are to, to be successful. And then with the success that you get, you can perhaps expand, right? Correct. But this is the this is the issue I see quite a, a, a lot about positioning. Um, and it's an interesting topic. Uh, a quick tip as well. Usually, if you think that the target market is too small, or if you start to cringe about, or, or you start to, to be scared about it, saying, oh, I think it's going to be too small, mm. this is what you need to pick. You need kind of to go one size below what you're comfortable with. Mm. And this is your this is going to be your niche market. Yeah. Let's dig into the actionable thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I'm interested in to knowing what type of activities or campaigns or, or, or things you've done in the past that were really successful in terms of like good marketing. Yeah. So are there any particular projects or, or campaigns that you've done in the past that were successful? And let's dig into them a little bit more. Yeah, I, I would say one of the most successful, like we tend to do a lot of content marketing um, and, and we're very kind of like, I guess, top of funnel type marketing team. Um, but one thing that worked really, really well. So there's you know thousands of salons using our platform uh, as their point of sale and CRM and, and point management software. And customers, when they walk out of the salon, leave a review out of five. So what they thought of their experience and they can leave a comment and they can share if the review is five out of five, they can share it on Facebook and so on. But one thing um, that just dawned on us really is when we were getting the data back was the amount of people who were leaving five out of five and four out of five star reviews for the salons. Uh, and it's not that we were surprised in a bad way, but we were like, this is absolutely incredible. And the rate of people leaving reviews was very, very high as well. Can you show those numbers? Uh, in terms of... The- so how many people on average would leave a review? out of 100 customer and then how many four out of five and five out of five it depends so some of them are doing it um some get their customers to opt in via sms and they will send them an sms every so often after a particular treatment or appointment uh, and that's very very successful but if you're doing it just purely through email it's not as successful so like what we found was when we we went back um and just basically went through everything you know, there was a substantial proportion, like a like a very large proportion of our database had a rating of basically four out of five or higher. It was actually something like 4.35, I can't remember what it was, was out of that particular base. And what we did was we just felt like 
we're sitting on so many success stories, if that makes sense, uh, like for thousands of businesses in Ireland, the UK and the US uh, and Finland. And what we did is we simply put together a campaign and uh, we put together like a, an award sticker basically for the window. Uh, and we said we sent out a letter and we just literally let them know by surprise that, guys, we're giving you this client experience award because you have literally had, you know, hundreds of reviews back and your rating is four out of five or higher on average. And the beauty of it was what made it so powerful. We got hundreds of emails back in and people sending us physical letters and photographs of them holding their award and how delighted they were and we're in business for 10 years. And this is the first time anybody's recognized us. There's two successful things about that campaign. Not everybody's comfortable submitting themselves into an award ceremony to be judged by a panel of so-called experts or to be judged by so-called like public audience for public votes. Um, and to me, that isn't really the, the, the true uh, what's the word? It's not the true benchmark for success. So a lot of these people hadn't been in any sorts of awards before or they didn't feel like they were leaders in their area. And the second thing, like I'm saying, is, is basically that these reviews were left by the people who were using their business every single day. So Forrest can tell them they're great. Like some like national award ceremony can tell them they're great. And they could be very right. They could be great. But what was so successful about it was is we just literally sent out a letter with a sticker for the window and just thought, oh, we, we should let these guys know and make them feel celebrated. But the response to it was just like absolutely insane, way better than we ever thought before. I mean, we had salons ring us going, you know, there's a woman down the road that's copied the sticker and put it in her window. She's not using her software. Like it was just nuts, uh, the response we got. So it was an incredibly powerful way to take that bit of data and the reviews from, from the software and go, wow, this is actually a very customer service led industry. And clearly people love going into the salon, largely speaking. Uh, and I think there's thousands of salons sitting on success stories and, and they probably don't just know how much people love them. And we just kind of went, like, here's the evidence that people really love you. And that worked well because it wasn't about us. But that's the same reason why I, I feel generally, I don't want to generalize too much, but generally awards are complete bullshit mm. because of exactly that. You have like four judges or five judges that are here to judge the experience or a website or the social media accounts or a campaign. Mm. The only thing they have is just them looking at it. Like, let's say there are some a lot of website awards or the best websites of the year, whatever. And, and it's fine for businesses to enter them. I understand why they do that, right? Mm. But from the judges, they might not be the customer, the target market at all. Let's say, take an example, you submit Forest website into an award ceremony and the four judges, none of them are salon owners or any type of owners or any related to the beauty industry. Yeah. Why would they like rank you or grade you like on what basis they are not able to tell to tell you whether or not your website is good yeah the only people who can are the visitors the people who are in your target market right. so that's why i had the issues with that so that's a really interesting tech in, into the award kind of rule world so but for for let's say for, for for marketers listening and and who'd like to have who'd like to apply this those principles mm. that you just mentioned to their own business why do you think this particular campaign and our project worked that well? A couple of reasons. One was, it wasn't about us telling them they were great. It wasn't about they, them saying they were great themselves. It was feedback from people that they probably hadn't analyzed properly, if that makes sense. So we kind of unlocked an element of greatness in them, if that makes sense. Um, or, or we unlocked basically a piece of data to go like, this is absolutely incredible. And, and we were able to tell them that they were in basically like the top three or four percent of, of all salons in, in Ireland and the UK based upon the ratings and so on. So um, that was one part of it. It was about telling them they were great without us telling them they were great, if that makes sense, because any cynic would turn around and go, OK, what are they going to look for next? And it wasn't about that. There wasn't like a hard sell at the end of it. There was nothing like that. It was just genuinely us telling them we're great based upon the client reviews. Um, that was one reason I think it worked so well. Um I suppose like it, it it depends on what vertical you're in, but I think it really tapped into the psyche of what they do. I mean, they're face to face. Like customer service is just so incredibly vital and part of what they do. So one of the most important aspects of their business. So we could have sent them something saying, you know, they send out, for instance, SMS campaigns, email campaigns, and so on through our um through our software. So I'm sure we could have sent them an award to say you're in the top ten percent of people who get the best opens and click rates and salons in Ireland to the UK. They don't care about that. That's not what their passion is. So it tapped into their passion and their passion is making people look good and feel great. So I suppose if, if you were to sum it up in something, I would say it was about us being able to present to them something that proved that they were truly great at what they love doing. And that was like the, the, the key part of it, I think. Maturely, it also triggers some sort of a 
you know, the reciprocity principle where you, you know, give something away and then they're more likely to do something in return? It does. But I think, um, and, and I'm a firm believer in that, I mean, that's a large part of what our strategy is based around. Um, but I think it was also that it was quite sincere and genuine. Uh, there was nothing, it didn't stink of anything. There was nothing hidden or there was nothing, do you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, reciprocity is, is really powerful. I mean, that's something that we do everywhere. We, we do it in everything. So for instance, we know that salon owners tend to be, um, you know, amazing what they do in terms of uh, styling or in terms of skin or in terms of whatever. But the part that scares them more is, is running a business and managing people. So, you know, we give them so much free content through webinars. We give them eBooks to download. We've even done things like, you know, if you want a free um, online reputation audit, so one thing that scares salon owners a lot is what people are saying about them online uh, because they have very little control over that, uh, even though we would argue they do have control over it because if you provide a great service. But, it, you know, it doesn't feel like uh, getting a complaint over the phone that you can kind of act on uh, there and then. So, yeah, other things that we've done, for instance, in terms of reciprocity was to send them a type form and they would fill out a few quick details and then we would actually get on the phone and bring them through it and say, look, you know, here's some like tips to help you like build your online reputation um, uh, and do that so I think like giving away things that are of genuine value for genuine reason is what like a lot of great content and a lot of great marketing is about uh, it's okay to turn around eventually and be like guys you know we do have a software that can help you with this or, or like it's not you know it can't go on forever and ever and ever but there's ways that you can bridge that gap from giving stuff to try and get people engaged and I think it has to be a slow and patient process um, that adds genuine value for them and this is where we're coming back to the growth hacker thing earlier if you're trying to hammer people through your funnel too quickly, if you're trying to get a close too soon, you're you're just you're just going to alienate people. Um, you, you've got to give them something and prove yourself. And it's not just about giving things to get it back. It's about proving yourself to them that you are a thought leader in a particular area or that you really know about your particular area so that they begin to trust you. And when they trust you, they are far more likely to buy from you. And that to me is what great marketing is about. But that's what Larry Kim uh, has shared a few, a few times before. They made some study about PPC and uh, the actual conversion rate from uh, from PPC ads to um, to, to purchase or, or, or lead generation. And the main difference, the main differentiator, if you have to, to choose one thing to work on to improve your conversion rate, is mm. the brand. As as soon as people recognize the brand mm. and tr- as you, exactly as you mentioned, trust it, yeah. they're much more likely uh, to click on the ad. Yeah, and that sounds obvious, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not something you can hack, right? That takes years. That takes years. You can't hack great brand advocacy. Um, not brand trust. You can probably hack brand awareness, but not brand trust. And they're two different things. Like so, you know, if if, if you get some in, insane product placement by pure chance. Uh, I don't know, Obama's like wearing a pair of your shoes or I don't know, whatever it is, you will get brand awareness very, very quickly. Uh, but people actually believing in what you do, uh, your story, how you differentiate, what you're going to do for them, that takes a long time to build up. Um, and again, because, and this is the reason this podcast exists, there's a lot of marketers who give marketing a bad name. So people are extremely cynical uh, of marketing, extremely cynical of it. And I, I don't blame them. So it's kind of like if you try to hack and you try to close too soon, you're going to get give marketers a bad reputation. And that's where a lot of it comes about. It's like, it's not just all about you and, and that metric. It's about actually about the customer. And if you can prove that to them by giving them some great stuff for free or by going the extra mile in customer service or by creating a product that nobody else, you know, is bothered creating because you're part of such a small market. So in, in other words, by being really niche and giving them something they can't get elsewhere, whatever it is, that's going to make you special and different and make them trust you that's worthwhile, but it takes time to build. And that is not a growth hack. It's just hard work, blood, sweat and tears and really understanding your market. Connor, I know you, I know you guys for a while now and I know how thoughtful you are with your hiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met your team and I know them quite well now. And I can, you know, I can, I can say that it's quite impressive the, the, the amount of people that you're able to, to get that share the same values and are on the same mission, really, to, to help for us to grow. So I'd like to get into the, the how of, of this hiring. Uh, can you go through, like for, for marketers listening who are also managers or leaders mm-hmm. and who are hiring people, what's your process from start to finish? Sure. I suppose there's kind of two things, really, two or three different things that are ultra, ultra important when you're hiring. You have competency, you have culture fit, and then I think you have motivations as well. So what's actually motivating them as a person? So we have a very, very kind of tight process in, in Forest, and I start with the competency part. I think that's the easiest part to identify. So if we're hiring, for instance, 
So a recent hire would have been Killian, for instance, and he works on on basically marketing products to existing customers to to you know to add onto the contract and so on. So a lot of it is heavily down to email marketing. So I looked at all the applications. I seen he had some decent experience. Reached out, uh, or sorry, he applied for the job, and then reached out saying like round one before I, you even come to the table. Round one is basically do a YouTube video, and the second thing is here's like an idea for a campaign write me the first email in MailChimp and send it to me as if I'm the customer. Uh, I want you to send me that email that you're going to, that's going to launch this campaign or that's going to try and get that particular lead. So they send that through. So straight away I can see if they're half decent to content or not, but that only tells me a little bit about the capability. It tells me, are they a decent writer or do they kind of write good, punchy, catchy content that's not too clickbaity, for instance. The next round then is bringing it to the table. And what I typically do in that scenario is, I've uh, given away all my trade secrets here, but I take that email, I'll turn it upside down, and I'll write some metrics on the back of the actual piece of paper. And that metrics might be, it had a 12% open rate and a 3% click-through rate. And I will say, right, you've sent this email out, that email you sent to me has gotten this result. You're now going to send a second email, a follow-up email. Tell me how you're going to use the data from the first one in order to, to build a second email. Uh, and... I've gotten a whole wide range of answers and some are absolutely brilliant, but largely speaking, what I'm looking for is for the person to say, well, you know, if, if I like put a small variance on the title, how will that change? Or I want them to turn around to me and say, this piece of data I have, it doesn't tell me everything, but it's my benchmark. And that's from where I start in order to try and optimize to increase uh, opens and clicks and so on. So I, I do tasks like that, depending upon what the role is. And that's kind of like the first round. Um, we use a technique, an interviewing technique called top grading in Forest. And you can check it out on YouTube and so on. But it's basically asking like a repeated set of questions at every person's stage of life throughout their CV from their education upwards. And you find trends in, 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 in why they've made choices the way they've made them. And that's really important because you kind of start to find out what motivates people. And if you really press people, uh, and very often we'll do a second round of that as well. So it'll be another person asking the exact same questions over and over. So it seems like really tedious and almost unfair. But it's, it's amazing when you keep asking the same questions, people start to open up after a while. It's kind of like asking the seven whys. You know, if you keep asking why, somebody eventually tell you the truth. That's one thing. And, and part of that that's very, very important is the reference stage. So I will put down the reference stage. Most people think reference stage is like, you know, that's the bullshit stage. I ring and they'll tell me he's great. That's because you're doing the reference stage wrong. The reference stage for me is probably one of the single most important stages of the entire interview. So the way it works for us is they have to ring us Okay, the reference rings us. So we'll say, okay, who are your references and have to be recent and from at least, you know, your manager, maybe your current or last job or last job or whatever. And we get two references to ring us. And the reason is, is if somebody isn't so good, for instance, if you ring that person's manager, they'll probably go through the motions and they'll go, yeah, they turned up on time. They were a decent guy, they blah, blah, blah. If it's a case that I have to go and I have to pick up the phone and ring that person on that person's behalf, to actually try and give them a good reference, that's a very different scenario. I, like, I, I'm not going to do that for somebody that I don't really believe in. But it's also when you're talking to the reference, it's what you say that's really, really important. So part of the interview will be, say, if it's Louis, and if Louis worked, um, with, I, 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 let's just make this up, like Louis worked in, in the Tesco marketing department, and I find out that, you know, I, I ask Louis, who, who's your manager? Who did you report to in Tesco? And if he says, well, I reported to... Leanne and she was my manager and I'll go great okay well one of the stages in Forest is a reference stage and we will be requiring Leanne to ring in for with a reference so can you tell me Louis when Leanne rings in what she's going to tell me about you and what are what is she going to say are your strengths and your weaknesses and that pitches everything extremely differently because it's no longer a case of you know what I'm going to tell them I'm a perfectionist and I'm a great team player it's actually about what Leanne thought about them and you tend to get a very much more honest view and they start thinking about, well, what would she have said about me? And, and that really gets the truth out. So you find out about the competency. You find out why they make decisions the way they've made them. You find out, you know, what their motivations are. You find out from the references when they pick up the phone and you give the references in a nice way, a good grilling. So I've had people ring in, for instance, when I have interviewed them and, you know, I've, I've been on the phone for 20 minutes for a reference and they've said one or two little things and I kind of go, right, okay. You know, they said this in the interview. Would you say that's true or not? I go, yeah, yeah, no, it's kind of true. And I'd be like, what do you mean it's kind of true? And then eventually you get to it. So I've had people break down after 20 minutes going, I have to be honest, <laughs> I wouldn't hire them again. <laughs> so you had, that's, that that's was my question. You had examples, you have exa you had examples of, of, of people who, who seem to be very good candidates. And mm -hmm. when, 
when the reference stage came in, you talked mm. to their reference and you actually ended up not hiring them at all because you knew that they weren't, they weren't that good. Correct. And, and that you wouldn't get to the reference stage if I didn't think the person was the right person. But I can only find out so much in an interview, no matter what I do. And if you ask the right questions and ask people the right thing, it's amazing how open they are. If You just got to keep pressing. And in a nice way, you got to keep pressing and keep asking questions like, you know, I've often asked, like, how big was the team, for instance, and I'd ask the manager how big the team was and, you know, where would you rank them in terms of performance on the team and why would you rank them there and, you know, would you have kept them on? Like, there's loads of different questions you can ask. You, you just have to keep asking and cross-reference it with the information that you got previously. And some of the candidates, I'm not going to lie, that have ended up being hired have been people who said, you know what, I'm actually really crap at this and, like, I was told I was pretty crap at it. And, you know, I tried to work on it by doing X, Y, and Z. And then the reference rings in and tells me they're really crap at this but they've tried X, Y, and Z. And that thing might not be that important, but at least I know they're up front and they're not going to bullshit me. Um, and I think if you're not a bullshitter, that's a good place to start if you want to be a great marketer. Um, so yeah, and th- there's one other part as well is actually around personality testing. So we use a, a profile test called the McQuaig. So the McQuaig is super important in terms of our hiring process. So it tells you about drive. It tells you about like compliance versus independence. It tells you, are they more sociable or more analytical? Are they more driven or do they tend to be more accepting? So what kind of person are they when you walk into the room? Do they take charge? Do they not? And that is astonishingly accurate. And it tells you what's known as their situational and the real. So it'll tell you, you know, what way they are in a certain situation. Or sorry, it'll tell you how they're acting, should I say, versus how they actually are. And I've often been in an interview and it's astonishingly accurate. And I would show them the two graphs and I'd, I'd ask them, like, you know, it says like you're acting way more driven than you really are. Like, can you tell me why? And, and they'd be like, oh, my God, how did you know that? And, and it's amazing. You can find out things from people. And, and that's a really important part of it as well. I think you should add another stage to your hiring process. Okay. The first question you should ask them is, do they, have you listened to the Everyone Hates Marketers podcast? <laughs> or maybe would you describe yourself as a ninja? Yeah. <laughs> or a tosser. <laughs> what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them for the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Yeah, like for the next 50 years, I don't, I don't know, but for... Like, I think there's a couple of things they can learn. One is I've been the guy who has done the short-term crappy campaign to try and get the result. And it, it feels like, I know if you're under pressure from a CEO or you're under pressure and you're battling with the sales team or, or what the case may be, like one thing I would say is, is try not buckle under the pressure. Learn to say no. I think no is one of the most powerful like things in, in, in marketing, the word no. You can kind of get away with doing things maybe a little bit more when you're a startup because you, you don't really have a brand. But one thing that I've learned um, is, you know, the bigger your company gets, the bigger everything gets, like you actually have a brand to protect. So one wrong move, it's, it's, it, it, and it can send you seriously, seriously wrong. So start thinking about that early. If you want to be a big company, if you want to be, to have an amazing brand, like we talked about earlier, if you want people to trust you, you have to be upfront and you have to, like when you screw up, you got to say you screw up. When you uh, don't offer something, tell them you don't offer something. When, you know, do whatever it takes to build their trust. Uh, and I think that's like one of the most important things because in, in, in today's market where there's so much noise and so much disappointments, uh, trust is a really, really rare commodity and it's not one that can be abused. What are the top three resources you would recommend listeners to uh, to read or to listen to or yeah. to discover? One that I really like, I, I think... If you're a startup, well, there's loads of different ones. One is Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. That's a really good book. So we sit around talking about strategies sometimes and, and uh, they're not strategies. So that really teaches you about what what like what like good strategy is. Actually, it teaches you what strategy is. And I can guarantee you it's probably not what you actually think it is. I certainly picked it up and went, wow, I can't believe it. I'm never going to use the word strategic again unless it contains some of these. So that's an incredible book that looks at different companies and strategies that they've deployed in order to succeed and really it's a really thought-provoking book it's not the easiest read but it's thought-provoking in terms of other resources like i think they all nearly come down to books all my favorite resources come down to books so jim collins good to great i think that is an absolutely incredible book uh, that talks a lot about trust and leadership it talks about like specialization it talks about long term it talks about all different things and, and something called the flywheel where if you work long and hard enough at something the momentum begins to gather and, and everything starts moving there's loads of different other resources. Then one that I really like, but you have to pay for it, is uh, Stratechery, uh, Ben Thompson. So it's about $10 a month and he emails you and his insight and analysis on tech and the general community and, and like TV, radio, tech is just mind-blowing. He's absolutely, his thought process is mind-blowing. It's the best content around, I think. 
Um, you have the likes of Ben Evans and so on, but I think this guy is just a whole different tier. In who is he? Is he a VC, a marketer? Or? I forget exactly his background. Like he's doing this full time now. He just goes around talking and stuff. But he, he analyzes and analyzes, and like he comes out with a daily email, and it's on, for instance, Facebook. It's on different things, and he just calls stuff out so far in advance. Like he's just absolutely incredible. So check it out. It's the best ten dollars you're going to spend. I think in terms of of making you think. Yeah, there's other ones. Then I guess that I look at, particularly from a SaaS point of view, like uh, Tom Tungus, a Saster. There's all these different blogs as well. So there's some really, really great stuff out there. And for marketers specifically, I tend to look more at, at general SaaS stuff than I do at marketing stuff. And that's probably by design because I tend to find I get caught down sometimes into, into just thinking in the marketing mind frame when I'd like to try and broaden the way I think to get a greater understanding of human behavior. Uh, one actually that's a really interesting, slightly off-topic blog is one called Farnham Street. So Farnham Street sends you a collection of articles and, and books. I think it's weekly and it's all, it's not all, but a lot of it is to do with psychology and why people behave the way they behave. And it's very, very deep and it gives you some amazing references. Um, so it, it, it'll get into the real like in-depth of why Buffett thinks the way Buffett thinks. It'll do everything. It's, it's just really, it's quite philosophical and it's quite deep, but it's very, very good. And I would say to you, if you're looking for some great resources, like, you know, you can Google the hell out of marketing blogs, you can Google the hell out of whatever, but I, I would try and find other stuff that helps you understand human behavior and why people think the way they think. If you're looking for something around what we were talking earlier about, like the negatives of short-term marketing and how, like all that kind of stuff, one really good book, and it's kind of about growth hacking and the good and bad, was a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying by uh, Ryan Holiday. And he was the head of marketing globally for Gap when he was 21 or 22. So like an insane, I know, I, I don't know if that was true nepotism or what, but um, so he's absolutely insane. And then he went on to do some political campaigns and now he kind of writes full time and he's got a few New York Times bestsellers. But that guy thinks about human behavior in a way that I just can only like admire and, and can only long for. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Now, I think he used it very much in a negative way to his advantage at the start. Like he talked about, for instance, there was this politician that he worked with uh, and I can't remember exactly the story, but basically he wasn't particularly liked in his local town. He was trying to get him voted. So he put up posters of him and went the data said they went around like in the dark and basically defaced the posters. And what they found was that it actually got buy-in from other people because they were like, oh, they shouldn't do that. And clearly this guy's and everybody wants to root for the small man. So what they did is they built a false nemesis to get buy-in from the town. So really smart stuff uh, that I'm not suggesting you do, by the way. <laughs> but um yeah, so they're the kind of resources I like. I, I really would read anything, Louis. So I, I just keep reading. That's the thing. Keep reading. Connor, you've been just okay. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> no, you've been amazing. Uh, you shared a lot of things I, I, I never heard of before, which is great. And I'm sure listeners will, will learn a lot from you. So thank you so much. Where can listeners connect with you and hear sure. more from you? Uh, on Twitter, it's at con, C-O-N underscore Keppel, K-E-P-P-E-L. We Don't go back in time in his timeline just read his tweet <laughs> don't go too far okay I do, I'll point you in a different direction go point Lee <laughs> now they're definitely going to go on yeah. I like it I like that's it that's a growth hack man. that's yeah. a growth hack <laughs> you meant behaviour the other thing is we write internally sometimes in Forest so Ronan the founder and pa Paddy our director of products and so on we write articles on, on kind of bootstrapping growth and how we think about growth and markets and product and that's called Nothing Ventured so because we, we say nothing ventured nothing gained and nothing ventured is in venture backed as well <laughs> but it's nothing ventured venture dot, dot rocks dot R-O-C-K-S nothing ventured dot rocks so check that out and yeah there that's you can connect with me there guys thank you that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a one-to-one as -one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always uns unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me 
an email. And the last thing I'd like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode, please share it to your friends, your colleagues, or whoever might like it. And also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast. Because if you leave us a five-star review, it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker. So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.